Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 842 with Meredith Sandland. Those employees oftentimes are family. Um, I remember uh, my years working as a minimum wage person in retail and how important my boss was to me, how important my coworkers were to me, and how much they taught me. Are you ready for it? Factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Today's episode is brought to you by DiagioBarAcademy.com, and I cannot be more excited to be partnering with Diageo because we have such similar missions. We want to share knowledge and transform the industry. Diageo Bar Academy equips bartenders, servers, managers, and hospitality professionals with the insights, stories, and tools to be better They are consistently raising the bar on industry standards. And no matter what your skill level is or knowledge or availability, there's something for you at DiagioBarAcademy.com. They have master classes and live events. And if you can't make those master classes or live events, there's recordings so you can watch it on demand at your convenience at www.DiagioBarAcademy.com. That is D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com get over there today's episode is brought to you by margin edge a restaurant management software that uses pos integration and invoice data to show you your food cost in real time margin edge gives you your prime cost daily so there's no surprises at the end of the month by totally digitizing your back office your team saves hours on paperwork and gets instant insights to manage food costs, labor, and budgets in the moment, not weeks after the period ends with supply chain disruption and labor shortages. Making real-time data-driven decisions is more important than ever. Because you are Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, Margin Edge is going to cover your onboarding costs. That means you get 60 days free to get started and up and running before you make your first payment. To learn more, head to me.marginedge.com slash restaurant hyphen unstoppable or find the banner in the show notes. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And I have to say, I haven't come across a restaurateur using Seven Shifts that hasn't been completely satisfied. Trusted by over 500,000 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the complete toolkit you need to easily manage your team's schedules, timesheets, communications, tasks, tips, and more all in one place. And because you are restaurant on Unstoppable listeners, you get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven, S-H-I-F-T-S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. What's going on, Unstoppables? We have a great show for you today, but this podcast does need your support. So use our sponsors, click our affiliate links, share this podcast with everybody you know who's trying to aspire to be great in the restaurant industry, and come hang out in the network. Join that network. Uh, our membership fees really support what we're trying to do here to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. Today, we're talking to Meredith Sandland, the co-author of Delivering the Digital 
little restaurant, your roadmap to the future of food. Uh, I should say she's a co-author with Carl Orsborn and I should also give a special thank you to Sean Walshef for making this recommendation and helping me connect with Meredith. Uh, this book was really great. I really enjoyed reading this book. It's kind of written in a way to, you know, paint a picture of what's happening in the landscape of just, a uh, the consumer, how the consumer's evolving from there. The book talks about the evolution of delivery and drive up and what's happening in different parts of the world uh, regarding the, the digital, transition from you know brick and mortar to more digital and how the states for uh you know a a market that prides itself on being at the leading edge of technology is really on the the trailing edge of the technological adoption when it comes to digital uh you know as far as restaurants go so she talks about that and then she gets super granular i should say they get super granular in how to roll out and execute digital. It's almost step-by-step. It's a really great book. I really enjoyed reading it. Uh, With no further ado, here she is, Meredith Sandland. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, the author, co-author, I should say, of Delivering the Digital Restaurants, Your Roadmap to the Future of Food, Meredith Sandland. Meredith, are you feeling unstoppable today? Absolutely. No question. I'm super excited to be here. I'm feeling unstoppable after reading this book. I have to admit, I really did enjoy it. I didn't get to dive into the the back end of the book as much as I was able to dive into the front end of the book, but I love the history of delivering. I love how you you gave us that history. You, You take us to different cultures and talk about how we can look to other cultures for inspiration with delivery because they were ahead of us. Uh, we'll get into the, a lot of those details, but I can't wait to pull back the layers on this book, but let's get that motivational inspirational ball rolling with a success quarter mantra. What do you got for us, Meredith? Yeah. Well, so I define my success by the success of others around me. And I typically um, don't feel like I've succeeded unless I've raised other people up. And so I have a quote by John Quincy Adams, if your actions inspire other inspire others to dream more, learn more, do more, and become more, you are a leader. Yes, great way to get this thing started, and I could not agree more. Um, yeah, and what- for those of us who work in restaurants, you know, um, those employees oftentimes are family. Um, I remember uh, my years working as a minimum wage person in retail, and um, how important my boss was to me, how important my coworkers were to me. And how much they taught me. Yeah. And uh, I like to say, uh, you know, you're only as good as the team you build behind every great restaurant's a great person. And this industry is all about creating opportunity for others. Right. So just so, kind of compa- yeah, just kind of compound off that, that sentiment. Uh, so I think we can kind of move forward. I, let us kind of understand who you are. Uh, like w- what makes you somebody we should or who makes you somebody we should be listening to? How did you get to this point where you could, where you could write this book? Oh, goodness. So um the most relevant experience I have is as the chief development officer at Taco Bell. Taco Bell, of course, is owned by Yum Brands, the world's largest restaurant company. Um, I built about a thousand Taco Bells. I uh, was responsible for architecture, franchising, construction, um, and concepting. And part of concepting is thinking through how does the physical space relate to the business model. And as I was going through that journey, a couple things were starting to change. Um, the first was that people were not going to malls as much as they used to. And of course, Taco Bells are frequently co-located uh, with malls and power centers. 
the second was that we were starting to see delivery creep into restaurants and places other than just New York. And the third big change that was happening was that delivery was becoming so common in New York that my uh, head of architecture and I looked at each other and said, why are we trying to build a full restaurant in the world's most expensive real estate in New York, in downtown Manhattan, when 30, 40% of the orders are going out the door delivery? We should just be in a commissary and deliver tacos. And of course, at that time, um, nothing like a ghost kitchen existed. Um, what was the time? Timestamp this for us. Timestamp that for you? Gosh, that probably would have been like 2015. 2015. What were those? Th- th- highlight those three characteristics again, those three variables that made you start thinking about this. Of uh, things that were changing. So um, you'll remember in 2008, the real estate collapse happened and people stopped building uh, new power centers. Um, so already the availability of real estate was changing. Um, and so we were trying to figure out how to accommodate that, but where consumers were going was starting to change. So a lot of those power centers, you started to see major chains go out of business. You started to see vacancies in those power centers. You started to see malls try to rethink um, what they should look like and start to be redeveloped and reimagined into mixed use formats. So you had a definite change in the consumer pattern of where they were going, you know, in the old McDonald's lexicon of workshop and play, um, you used to have these destinations that were, you know, either work or shop or play, and they very rarely were all three together, um, right in immediate proximity. And you were starting to see in particular on that shop vector at the time that consumers were doing less and less just going to shop. Now, a lot of that was caused by Amazon, right? If the product was going to come to me, why would I drive to a power center to go shopping? I wouldn't, right? Yeah. Um, so that was happening. Um, The second thing that was happening was that we were starting to see uh, delivery in our business. Um, So Taco Bell did one of the very first tests uh, with DoorDash um, way back in the day. So we were starting to see that happening. And then in places like New York, where um, Grubhub and Seamless were extremely strong, uh, you were seeing delivery penetration of total restaurant sales in the 30 to 40% range, just an absolutely astronomical number where it was no longer just, oh, a marginal extra bit of sales. It was really starting to become and define the business. So what was going on that this was happening in specific areas? What, what, where were those specific areas where you started seeing this happen? Uh, well, the places where delivery and digitization really started were New York with Seamless. Uh, Chicago with Grubhub, and then the San Francisco Bay Area um, with DoorDash, Postmates, and then Uber. So what was going on where, what was specific or unique about these locations that make delivery work? And why was it working Mm -hmm. so much better? Yeah. Well, um, a couple things were very unique about them. The first and probably most important is density. Mm. Um, And that also is something that we highlight in the international chapter in the book. Uh, because density makes network economics much, much easier. And this is true in all forms of delivery. This is true for Amazon. This is true for FedEx. Um, If you have a whole bunch of people in one place, then it's much, much easier to drop things uh, very quickly and have network economics that makes sense. Yeah, and you pointed out that it's in areas like India, like China, like England, where you have a really tight, group of people packed in together, uh, which is probably, again, you get into the book, which explains why they started. And we can look to those places Mm -hmm. for inspiration on on how to do delivery. But I think we can also look to these places. Maybe we'll get into this as we go as as what not to do. 
Mm. which I think is really important that we, and I don't want to get there yet. Um, so you, you, you saw that there was a trend happening in these congested areas stateside mm-hmm. where up to 30% of people were now ordering delivery and not just pizza, not just Chinese, but all concepts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And the next thing that these places had in common was, you know, these companies were founded there and they tended to be places that were more tech savvy in terms of the types of companies that were coming up in these uh, locations, but also more tech savvy in the user base. And so you tended to have um, a lot of tech employees who were very comfortable downloading an app and having, for example, food brought to them by a stranger, which is something, let's remember, your mother would have told you not to do when you were like 10, right? So um, that, I think, in all three locations was happening. And then the third thing was that you tended to have a very um, young population, um, typically millennial, who um, was open to these new business models, but also was not as open to the old way of doing things. So many of the millennials in these big cities don't have cars. Um, I know I lived in San Francisco at that age for eight years, didn't have a car the entire time. Um, They took it one step further and didn't even get driver's licenses. And this this is true. You can see it in the data. And Genwe is even more so um, delaying or not getting their driver's license at all. And when you think about the impact that that has on your shopping and eating experiences, you're not going to be driving to a place to go get something. It's much easier to have it brought to you. Yeah. Uh, so it was around 2015 where you started noticing this. You're still with Taco Bell at this time. Uh, what was going through your mind? Like, were you looking to, to get away? And like, what, what was, did you see this as an opportunity for you to like break off and do your own thing? Or yeah, what was yeah. that? Interesting question. You know, um, Taco Bell is very forward thinking on uh, many of these things. Um, they very early flipped their uh, website into something that you could order a taco on, which I know now seems like, why wouldn't you have that? But back in the day, it was very uncommon and restaurants um, typically had things like nutritional information and compliance data on their websites. Um, maybe their new LTO, um, but certainly not uh, the ability to order. Um, they launched an app very early on. So they were very forward thinking about these things, but it was clear that um, the base business really wasn't digital. And where most of their revenue came from, most of their consumers came from, most of their profits came from was not digital. It was a classic uh, four-wall business uh, restaurant, just like you would have anywhere else. And so fast forward, I don't know, a couple of years, and I meet a man named Atul Sood, uh, who is uh, the chief business officer at Kitchen United. And I went to have lunch with him, And he said, oh, why don't you come over and see what we're doing? And so I walked into the first Kitchen United location, which at the time was not even open. Kitchen United is one of the largest um, ghost kitchen ventures. It's uh, backed by Google Ventures, a number of others. Uh, But at that time, it was not a lot. They had three employees, a location that hadn't opened, and a few early seed investors. And I walked in and I thought, oh, my goodness, they are making the thing that I, as the customer, wish existed. Um, and it's not often in your career that you uh, hope for something that isn't out there and then you see it. So why so why did you, as the customer, wish this existed? Let's get into the psychographic of you, the consumer, at this point. Uh, well, we can answer as me, the consumer, or me, the B2B customer. Well, so in that sense, I was the B2B customer. The chief development officer at Taco Bell, is the, that's the decision-making role that would say, 
am I going to go build a restaurant or am I going to do a ghost kitchen? Gotcha, 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 gotcha. Um, So in that sense, um, I absolutely wish it existed because um, a capital light, more efficient way to expand that is entirely focused on off-premise made all the sense in the world to me at that time, right? So I was very excited about it. Um, As a consumer, I'm excited about it or was then and remain so because I think it has the potential to dramatically increase choice for consumers. And, um, you know, historically in the restaurant industry, real estate has acted as a bit of a moat uh, for the major restaurant chains. So because they control the best corners, they control um, all the best locations and trade areas in America. Um, It's relatively difficult for someone with even a wonderful restaurant idea to get it out to the consumer, right? Because they have to go build them one at a time all across the country. And that means amassing millions and millions of dollars, maybe billions in order to build out a restaurant network sufficient to reach everyone in America. It also requires uh, a level of competitiveness with uh, these major chains who already have all the existing real estate. Yeah. And what ghost kitchens do is they basically say, well, that moat doesn't matter anymore. It's no longer there because we're going to put kitchens in a bunch of places that are awesome, great trade areas, uh, great locations, and we're going to um, create a platform for excellent food to be accessible to more people more quickly. So what's happening in the marketplace right now is there's there are restaurateurs who are seeing this increase in delivery. However, they're frustrated that they can't deliver the same level of quality with their given circumstance. So mm-hmm. you have people, I can't remember the gentleman's name, but he created the United Kitchens, right? Who said, you know, if I just eliminated the whole in-house experience and focus solely on delivery, we could do delivery so much better. And it's clearly an under service vertical within the food and beverage industry, mm-hmm. right? So yeah, that's um, how the- uh, Massimo Noia DeMarco, um, the founder of Kitchen United, and um, I think he had two things in mind. One was doing delivery better, but also making the dining experience better. Um, right now, you have boxes that were designed primarily for a dining experience, maybe for drive-through, that are also trying to accommodate delivery. And as you mix those different modes into one building um, that aren't designed for them, you end up with a terrible outcome for everyone. And that's why we go into such detail in the book, in the chapter delivery is the new drive through talking about the history of the drive through. Yeah. Um, But get into what's also happening with the consumer. The consumer has changed a lot in the past 10 years, 15 years as well. So what were those big changes that happened? Yeah. So um, the consumer has really um, changed on three primary fronts. The first is that um, we, we call it, we eat as a nuclear family no more. And what this is really about is a bunch of good news, right? We're living longer. We're getting married later, probably becoming parents at a more mature age. We're having kids at a replacement rate instead of growing the population dramatically. Women are more uh, becoming more and more equal in the workforce. Lots of really great things happening. But as a result, the percentage of our lives that we spend living in a traditional nuclear family is shrinking. And most of our lives we spend as you know, single people, maybe living with some roommates, um, possibly living with just one child at home, um, possibly living as a single parent, possibly a whole bunch of time as an empty nester. And what that means from a cooking perspective is that it's just more efficient to have a restaurant do the cooking than to do it at home. In the old days when my grandmother was cooking at home, she might have been cooking for a family of four or six, right? 
And there's a ton of scale on that. She could go out and get all the ingredients, make it all, and it would all be consumed. But now if I'm cooking for one or two, maybe three people, the odds that I have to go out and buy a bunch of pantry staple ingredients that go bad before I use them again, the odds that I, um, you know, purchase lettuce that turns brown before I consume it, the odds that I make you're, so much. It's like you're talking to me right now, <laughs> Meredith. Exactly. I'm a single guy renting out yeah. a, a studio totally. apartment in a, yeah. a, a farmhouse, right? Yeah. Like, and I have the, I experience these pains. It's totally. like, it's so hard totally. for me. And I feel yeah. guilty sometimes because I'm like, I'm just going to go eat out because if I buy all this food, I'm, I'm not going to eat it all by myself. I grew up in a family of five. I only know how to cook like the last, like somebody with the last name Cacciatore knows how to for like a bunch of people. And it's just tough, you know? So, I mean, I That's totally, exactly yeah, I totally, I'm, I'm, you're painting exactly the picture. I'm that avatar. Sorry. I so in, um, in the sense of, you know, I think a lot of restaurants feel like, oh, the delivery occasion is stealing from my dine-in occasion. And certainly over the last year with COVID, it, it absolutely was that way. But really where delivery demand is coming from is people who don't want to cook anymore. It's coming more out of grocery than it is out of uh, restaurant dine-in. And it's coming out of them for this reason um, of just the lack of scale for any of us to cook at home. And even of those of us who love cooking, like you probably do, you want to do it when you're surrounded by a whole bunch of friends and there's a reason to do it, right? And otherwise, you're probably going to dine out. Um, The second dimension on which consumers have been changing Uh, we talk about in chapter two called Our Tastes Are Changing. And this chapter is really about how food has shifted from the experience of eating food, which really was brought to us by Instagram, to the identity of food. And a lot of us communicate our values and our identity through the food choices we make. So as an example, I might be vegan because I'm worried about the environmental consequences of meat. Um, I might love um, quote unquote ethnic foods because I want to be very worldly and like demonstrate all the places that I've been. Uh, I might be whole 30 because I want to be super healthy. I might, um, you know, only eat meat that I myself hunt because I want to demonstrate that um, I am kind of part of that food chain, right? There's lots of different versions of this, but everyone has um, a version that's suitable to them. And you combine that with a massive explosion in nutritional science and uh, different types of cuisine, uh, then you have this identity personalization where we all want to say, I am exactly this, right? And I want to eat in this way. Yeah. I think what you're describing right now, and if, I'm sorry if I cut you a little short, I think what yeah. you're describing right now is our biggest hope for I get how do I say this? Our biggest hope for fighting against big business because of conscious capitalism. <laughs> I mean, conscious capitalism is in what do my purchase decisions do for the environment, for my community? What do these purchases say about me and my values? And I think that where there's a swing happening right now where people are, are leaning away from so much like convenience is absolutely a big part of the purchasing decision, but more so there's a swing towards just consciousness and what does what impact does my purchasing decision make on the people around me the communities around me the environment all these things and i think uh it's important that restaurateurs understand that and educate people on that because i think that's the one saving grace that we still have to to kind of retain control of our industry what are your thoughts as i'm saying that yeah you know i think that's exactly right and 
um, I, I'm not a millennial. I'm a little bit older. And so I think those of us who are older have a tendency to say, oh, yeah, yeah. Americans say they want to eat healthy. Americans say they want to eat local. They say they care about the environment. But when push comes to shove, they don't make choices um, in line with those uh, values. And what we're starting to see is that millennials and particularly Gen Wei, the generation that comes after them, they are starting to make choices based on those values. Why do you think that is? And why has that changed? Yeah. You know, I think um, I think a huge part of it is just we've been talking about it for so long that it's it's starting to get into our kids at a very young age and it's starting to become part of their identity and who they are and so they value it more. Um, but we also have um, the cost of doing those things coming down. And uh, as we get better and better as a society about making great choices, whether it be for the environment or nutrition or whatever it is, we will get more and more efficient at making those things happen. So the, you're absolutely going to see um, less of a cost trade-off, which historically there has been between things that are say better for the environment and things that are not um, as we get more scale in the things that are better for the environment. The third reason that it's happening is because millennials and Gen Z are what I call renting rich. So, you know, one of the things that is unfortunate about being a 20 something in our culture today is that typically 20 somethings have a massive amount of student debt. Um, and it is a whole separate problem that is an excellent topic for another podcast. Yep. See, you yeah, know what I'm talking about. You're talking to me again. Most of my um, listeners know I'm over $200,000 there. I was at one point. So it's crazy. Yeah. It's just, it's crushing. And it it is crushing in a way that I think for many 20 somethings and 30 somethings indicates to them, you know what? I'm never going to own a house. That's just not part of my future. I'm never going to start a business. That's not something that I can do. And therefore, um, what maybe my parents' generation experienced, which was to be house poor, right? All the money went to the mortgage and there was nothing left over. And so you, you had to kind of cut costs where you could. Instead, we have the inverse where kids in their 20s and 30s are renting rich. Yeah. It's much more communal, uh, uh, you know, pulling resources. Uh, Like you mentioned, people aren't getting cars. Like that's another huge expense. Yep. Uh, Yep. So if you don't have a mortgage, you don't have a car, you don't have insurance, all these things go away kind of as a fixed cost. And all of a sudden the percentage of your income that's disposable goes up. And when you have a higher disposable income and at least in your mind have no hope of ever owning a home. And so it just becomes irrelevant to you then you start to think, oh, I'm going to spend my disposable income on experiences. I'm going to spend it on my values. I'm going to start putting this money toward things that matter to me. And those things look very different for millennials and Gen Z than they did for Gen Xers and baby boomers. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned that there's a big portion of the book that gets into drive through. I think you mentioned that real quick. I don't know if it makes sense to, I mean, why was that important to you to, to include that in the book? Yeah. Um, so, I don't know if you have any of these near where you live, but the old Taco Bell Mission uh, building or it was the very first building from like the 60s. Um, there's a few old McDonald's like this that were old walk-ups where when they first started drive through, they just slapped a window on the side and said, oh, this is great. We're going to have a few cars pull up and we'll get some incremental sales. Okay, fast forward to today. Imagine a drive through It looks nothing like that, no. right? The, the parking lot access flow has been engineered for ideal conditions. 
They have something called the drive-through stack, which is the number of cars that sit between the order point and the window. And that stack is perfectly timed um, to accommodate food preparation so that no one is ever waiting and everyone just flows through. There's an absolute science around uh, drive-throughs and even the kitchens changed, right? The, I can tell you inside a Taco Bell mission style, there was one line that ran perpendicular to the window. Um, and in a modern Taco Bell, there's two lines that run parallel to the window. And um, that change has enabled a whole bunch of things that make drive-throughs much, much more efficient. And I believe we're at a similar point in digital meaning that a lot of us have just slapped up a window on the side of our building and said, oh, great, I'm going to get some incremental sales from DoorDash. Fantastic. And that's true. So what's, that's what's, the equivalent, the what's the equivalent to that door, that window that's being slapped up and somebody getting onto delivery? Mm, being all in. Yeah. So I think slapping the window up is, you know, getting on a third party platform and then running your business exactly like you've always run it. Yeah. So uh, keep going. Yeah. And then if you, if you go all the way through, and I think the case we try to make in the book, if you go all the way through your business and redesign everything in light of both digital and delivery, you make a bunch of very different decisions. So as an example, um, Chipotle has the digital kitchen. Well, what is that kitchen for? That kitchen is so that if I'm in the store and I'm going through the line picking my items, there's not an order ahead of me that came in digitally that's getting attention while I'm standing there, right? Um, Or maybe uh, a good example would be thinking through how you do marketing differently. So old school four wall business was how many people are coming in the door? How much can I get those people to spend? A new school way of thinking about a restaurant is a... Um, LTV to CAC. So what is the customer acquisition cost or CAC? What is the lifetime value of that customer on on an individual level, each customer? How much should it cost me to get them? And then over the course of my relationship, how much money do I make from them? Which is a much more um, software-like way of thinking and e-commerce-like way of thinking. Um, And there are examples all throughout the book like that, that say, okay, you need to fundamentally rethink how you operate, how you market, how you separate out the channels, how you combine the consumer experiences, how you combine the consumer data so that everything is shaped around digital. Yeah. Well, what's interesting, I mean, it's just the, the landscape through which we do business has completely transformed uh, specifically because of digital. And I think food and beverage, because it's such a tangible product, was one of the, that's one of the reasons why we're the last ones to adopt this because it technology has hadn't improved or have had, had not improved enough to the point where the bar was low enough for your average restaurant tour to grab it, you know, but we're, I think that's true. And also there's a, a quote in the book um, where we are interviewing a bunch of people from different international markets. Um, there's a guy who says that delivering food is the second hardest thing after delivering organs. <laughs> yeah. I remember that. And I love that. Quote. Yeah. Because it's so true, yeah. right? I mean, to deliver food and keep it food safe, to keep it hot, to keep it from becoming a sloppy mess, it's hard to do. But you, you have these business models, and what I think what the industry is guilty of is that we just did what the guy before us did or the gal before us did, and what they taught us to do, and, and it's just one generation passing down knowledge from the, the to the next generation to the next generation. But these business models that were created 100 years ago did not have in mind 
that there that the the landscape was going to be changing delivery was going to be a, a more prevalent thing and that the fact that the 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 concept of digital didn't even exist so but we're still operating mm-hmm. with those business models and we're trying to jam delivery into those old dinosaur models and we were wondering why like our, our margins are getting ate up because the, the 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 business model was never designed for that in the first place do you, am i That's swinging or miss okay so 100%. why why is that correct get into the details you're you're more intelligent than i am on this I don't know. I don't know about that. <laughs> I had to spend a year and a half writing a book to come to that conclusion. Well, I didn't write the book, so you got more on this. <laughs> um, so it it is. I think first of all, incredibly natural that anyone, any industry, would react that way. Right? They they have an established model that is working, that is delivering profit, and when something new comes along it is the natural tendency to say, well, this new thing is 1%, 3%, 5% of my business. And most of my business over here operates this way. So I'm going to keep doing what I know how to do and focus here. And I'm not going to distract myself with this tiny little piece. And typically that tiny little piece is actually less profitable, at least at the beginning. And it's only those who either have nothing to lose or um, who maybe are in such dire straits that will see it for what it is and say, forget the old way of doing things and starting over. And uh, in the book, we talk about a couple of examples about this. You know, someone with nothing to lose tends to be an upstart, right? Tends to be a company that doesn't have 95% of their business over here acting this way. Um, And so examples of brands like Salted Brands or Doghouse, they are able to think toward the future and think about adding virtual brands in a stack because they don't have an existing business model to disrupt. Yeah. Doghouse past guests on the show, by the way. Love them. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Yeah. The other um, the other example of that we talk about in the book is in the chapter, Why Pizza Works. And we talk a lot about the history of Domino's. Domino's to me is a fascinating company because they almost went bankrupt. They were almost like not around and their franchisees were closing stores. Everyone was really unhappy. It was very bad. And they essentially bet it all on black, right? They were like, things are going so poorly. We're just going to remake this company into a digital company. And that was an excellent, excellent bet to make. And it totally paid off for them. Mm -hmm. And they were able to do that because the underlying historic business was in a lot of trouble. Yeah. Um, you, you, again, I, I mentioned that you, you point to other markets, uh, across the, the, the globe that, uh, are about 15 to 20 years ahead of us, really. Uh, when you think about like the progress they've made and a lot of that is because of the physical, the, the congested areas that they're in and all the points that we already discussed up to this point. But you point out that in all these markets, there's usually one or two big players that take up 80% or what, what's the percentage of market that w- these one or two players usually take up? Isn't it upwards like 90%? Yeah, usually 80 to 100%. Yeah. yeah. And the same is true, by the way, in the U.S. and other verticals. If you think about something like online travel agencies, there's not a million of those, right? There's a few big ones. So I don't know if you're familiar with Yuval Noah Harari, but he is the author of Sapiens. Uh, mm. it's, it's a book that kind of went viral a few years back, but he's a, he was a history teacher. He studied history and he made like, these predictions based off of where we came and like where we're going. And uh, he's just kind of emerged to be a leader in this idea of like what the, like a futurist, what the future looks like. And he did a, a segment on 60 minutes. And I was watching that this morning, just before our, our interview. And he's talking about uh, data and uh, the, the dangers that come with big companies and big data and how we need to be aware of data. Um, so 
to come full circle, what happens when these big organizations have 80 to 100% of a market? And therefore, 80 to 100% of the data, is that what you're thinking? Yes. Yeah. And like, let's scary. be honest. Like, like, so, okay, let's, let's take a few steps back. A lot of people look to third-party deliveries and say, these, these business models are broken. They're not making any money. They're just throwing money. Like, what's the point? We all looking and laughing at these companies. But is that what they're really in this business for, to make money from the third-party delivery? Well, um, so... I would first of all turn it on its head a little bit. If you read the DoorDash S1, it's very instructive because they talk about cohorts of customers. So how long someone has been with them. And yes, they're unprofitable kind of on average when you look at all the cohorts. But if you look at the cohorts who've been with them longest, those are profitable. And so essentially what happens is they have that huge customer acquisition cost that um, costs them a lot of money. And then they have a period of, I'll call it, um, behavior or habit building with consumers where they're still not very profitable. And then once they're in, they're in and they're quite profitable. And so, yes, on average, you see it as not very profitable, but over time they will become more and more so. But they also have all this data and what are they going to do with that? And um, I don't think we have seen how much they're going to monetize that data truly. It's yet. scary. Am I, so like uh, he points out uh, Yuval Noah Harari. I'm kicking myself because I just realized I made notes on this earlier. It was right in front of me. The <laughs> time. Uh, he points out there's, there's three rules uh, when it comes to if you, if you are one of these organizations and you do have all this data, uh, if you if you get my data, the data should be used to help me, not manipulate me. Whenever you increase surveillance or of an individual, you simultaneously have to increase surveillance of the companies and governments collecting that data. And the third rule, never let all the data live in one place. That's a recipe for di- dictatorship. So you look at what's happening with these third-party organizations, right? And it's just like, okay, so yes, they're getting all the data, Um are they using it to manipulate the consumer? Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> that's the whole point. That's what I they're mean, after. That's, that's yeah. the money. They're playing the long game. They don't care about money in the short term. They're looking yeah. to get 80 to 100% of market share, and everybody freaking eats, Meredith. So there's going to be, there's gonna be data, their, their scary goal data. They're going to get you to use their platform more frequently, right? So instead of ordering out once a week to order out three times a day, that would be like the ultimate goal. That's very similar to um, if you saw the social dilemma where Facebook is trying to get the, I guess, fictional Facebook in the movie is trying to get the um, kids in the movie to like stay on the app constantly and keep using it. Um, in many ways are the same thing, right? They want you to use it more often to buy more things from it and to buy the most profitable things um, on the platform, whether that profit is coming in the form of advertising or placements or, you know, their own vertical brands or whatever it might be. Yeah. Now, does that make them inherently evil? That may be another subject for a totally different podcast. I do not think it does. I think that uh, that power can be used for good. And if you think about ultimately combining my behavioral history, which is what that is, what choices I've made on an ongoing basis with things like my nutritional profile, what my doctor thinks I should eat. You could actually end up in a world um, where the recommendations are all very good for me and they're meant to help me live a better lifestyle. Now, I personally believe that what it takes to do that is to have the consumer own their own data and be able in a blockchain kind of way, plug it into 
um, various platforms rather than the platforms owning the data and me showing up to use the platform. But um, that's, that's a shift that I think um, we have to get to in order to have that good of an outcome. But it's pretty obvious that these third-party companies have no intentions of sharing that data. They don't want the consumer to have that data. Well, they, they certainly don't want um, competitors to have the data. And to some extent, they don't want the restaurants to have it. Um, it depends on what their relationship is like with, with um, an independent or given restaurant chain. Um, but I don't know that they are totally against consumers having it. Yeah, um, I don't know I, either. Honestly, I think that it's going to take a, a mindset shift for all of us on all of these platforms, whether it's Amazon or Facebook or LinkedIn or any of the things that we use that track our behavior and, and track our data, Netflix, any of these things, it's going to take a fundamental shift for us as consumers to rise up and say, no, wait, that information is mine. Yeah. So, I mean, it just, it was almost serendipitous that I watched that and then I read your book and we, we get, they, they mention all this data and the, seeing those three rules of making sure that the, the data is available for both the company collecting it and the consumer and all parties involved, really. And this is this idea that, um, they're, I know they're just going for market domination and that's just reinforces this idea that not like it's bad to have one company with all that kind of data. So that scares me a little bit too. And the thing that we don't understand is, when the when the these marketers are smart and we don't even know the the potential of how that data can the consumer's dumb let's be honest they don't even know how they're using that data against them and it, when you become unaware of how you're being influenced which is already happening today but it's going to be 10x cuz it's exponential that kind of that kind of shit scares me and i think that it is, it is scary and i think the example i'll give is i'm from Wisconsin yeah. and I, I love cheese like I, I am totally stereotypical on this dimension. I'm from the dairy state and I love cheese. I love cheese so much that I probably eat more of it than it's good for me. And if someone were to go through my behavioral history and looking at things that I purchase, I tend to purchase things that involve cheese. And if someone were to then use an algorithm to say, what are we likely to be able to get Meredith to click on? What is she likely to buy? It's probably going to involve cheese. And so the algorithms are going to, um, in an effort to get me to buy more frequently, in an effort to get me to be a more loyal customer, they're probably going to show me cheese more often than is good for me, right? Yeah. And uh, that requires, in order to not have that future turnout, that requires me as a consumer to be able to combine with that data other pieces of information. Yes, I click on cheese. I love cheese. I admit it. But... My doctor says I also need to eat vegetables. And my fitness coach says I only need to have this many calories a day. And it turns out cheese is incredibly uh, calorific, right? So if I'm able to combine all those other data sources with it and I'm able to control it, then I'm able to have a much better outcome. And I'm still going to click on cheese because I like it, but I'm also going to have all these other inputs into my data set. So, I don't know if this is necessarily pushback because I think we align. I mean, it's it's common it's common knowledge that what you want to do is to migrate people from third party platforms to your own native. We'll get to that, uh, mm-hmm. but I think this right now I'm kind of delivering home the, the significance of why that's so important. Uh, so eighty, per, so I, I can't remember who said it, but in your book you mentioned that eighty uh, percent. I can't remember the exact. I know that the number was eighty percent, but you were saying that. Um, 
basically once somebody has a habit around one of these third parties, the likelihood of them getting they're they're 80% more likely to use the third party. I think that's what the, the, the stat yeah. is well, instead, of, instead of changing their habit to go to use your native ordering. So that's yeah, the thing that scares me. They also stick with whatever platform they're comfortable with. Prime, so, the law of primacy. Like it's the first thing they use. They're going to continue to use it. So our job is to be a DoorDash or an Uber. Yeah. Or, or, so our yeah. job is to migrate these people from those habits that they've created. And we all know the power of habit. Uh, mm-hmm. It's really hard to break habit. Uh, mm-hmm. And there's an, a 20% chance that we can do that. Now, you look at the, the these third parties that have all that data and they're using that data to, to, to track the behavior of these people who they're already improving the user experience to, to they don't even, they're not even aware of how they're being influenced. Right. They're, they have that to make sure that these people are staying on their platforms. Right. How are we supposed to compete with that to, to migrate these people from these third party to our own pl- platform? Yeah. So, um, first and foremost, you have to give re- reason to do it, right? People aren't just going to switch out of the kindness of their own hearts. And I think during um, during the pandemic, you had a lot of restaurant organizations saying, oh, a third party is hurting us, like be sure to order first party. And sure, you had some consumers who would make that switch, understanding what it meant for the restaurants. But what the third parties offer is so compelling that to just have consumers out of the goodness of their own hearts order first party is a very unrealistic expectation. You have to be able to say, here's why I'm better. Here's why I'm worth it. Yes, you can go to you know one of the third party platforms and get all these different options and have a great seamless experience and it's super easy to use and your credit card's already loaded into it and whatever else, right? And in order to get someone to leave that environment, you have to be willing to say, I'm going to make it worth your while. And I'm going to make it worth your while by giving you a frictionless digital experience, by giving you a better delivery experience or pickup experience, if that's what you do, and potentially by giving you some kind of offer. Then once I have you over on the first party platform, I need to, as you say, build that habit. Do it once, not a habit. I need to have you do it multiple times. And so much like DoorDash has spent all this money acquiring customers and Uber Eats has spent all this money acquiring customers. If you really want your consumers to come over to the first party platform, you have to be willing to acquire them too. So you have to um, reward them for coming over and then you have to um, give them an incentive in order to build that habit. And then once they've done it a bunch of times and realize that actually your, your app is really easy to use or your mobile ordering interface is really easy to use and that the delivery experience is fantastic, they're going to keep coming back. All right, now is a good time to take our first break to thank our sponsors, and we'll be right back to kind of pull back some of the layers on this. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs, and I have to say, I haven't come across a restaurateur using Seven Shifts that hasn't been completely satisfied. Trusted by over 500,000 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the complete toolkit you need to easily manage your team's schedules, timesheets, communications, tasks tasks, tips, and more all in one place. And because you are Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, you get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven, S-H-I-F-T-S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. We're back. And you just started telling us about how uh, the best way to migrate people from these third party to your native uh, delivery or your native uh, option for your, your own restaurant. Um, you said it was providing a good incentive. And what was the other thing you said? 
building the habit and a great experience and a great experience. So give me some examples of the incentives that we should be using to get people to come off of these third parties. Yeah. So the most basic one is just telling people that it exists. Um, And many times when you communicate to a certain segment of consumers that you have a first party ordering experience, they will migrate over. Um, After that, it tends to take some kind of offer. Hey, if you order from my first party, um, I'm going to give you a free whatever to go with your meal. Um, Or I have a loyalty program that helps you um, earn additional meals, etc. So um, I think that that the nature of the offer is going to vary with your brand and what resonates with your consumers. Um, But it does need to be something that's valuable enough to make a consumer stop and say, Oh, that's, that's worth trying. I'll do that. Now. uh, I mean, I think we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves. We're going to be, I have a feeling we're going to be all over the place today. So before I actually, before I get into that, I want to make one more point because in your book, you, you point out that the, the consumer demands, you use that phrase a lot. The consumer demands this. The consumer wants this. The consumer, the, the consumer needs this, and you have to give the consumer what they want. Mm-hmm. Uh, where do the the majority of marketing dollars go for these third party pl- platforms? Or where where does I should say where does the majority of the money go on uh-huh. these third pl- party platforms? How do they spend their marketing the question. dollars? You, you yeah. mean? Yeah. So um, the majority of the marketing dollars, I would say just honestly, based as a consumer, they don't release this information publicly. So just using all the apps and platforms and seeing what they're doing, um, they're doing a little bit of awareness building, right? So they're um, advertising on TV now and um, doing digital marketing campaigns, trying to get people to download the app and things like that. Um, But once they've got someone downloading the app, their challenge is to get people to use it. And so there they're trying to do a lot of um, free delivery giveaways where they're funding um, either the cost of the delivery or maybe even a discount on the food. Um, that's really where most of the marketing is going. Well, I mean, I, th- I just think that th- there's this, I think that we think from the outside looking in, it seems like the consumer is demanding this, but I think that at the same time you have millions upon millions upon millions upon millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars going towards telling the consumer that they need this. Yeah, it's right? true. Did, you, did you read the Bloomberg article about how the millennial lifestyle is subsidized by venture capitalists? It's so, really yeah, good. but the, it, like, so, I mean, it's kind of funny because like, yeah. I, I, there's a part of me that wants to push back and it's like, does the consumer demand this or yeah. are they being manipulated into thinking that it's what they need? Um, for sure. There's an element of, um, subsidizing the consumer to train them to use it. Now, if there was no underlying latent consumer demand there, they wouldn't, they wouldn't care if it was subsidized, right? If it wasn't something that was attractive to them, offering it for $10 instead of 12 would make no difference to them. So there is some level of base attraction to the concept of all of these things, whether it's, you know, Airbnb or DoorDash or WeWork or, you know, name your millennial thing that is being subsidized by VCs. Um, if there were not some underlying demand for them, it wouldn't make sense for the VCs to spend money converting people over to it. Right. So um, I think both can be true. I don't know. Maybe I'm just like a very distrusting and big organization, but I think it's just a big play to get data. I think this whole thing is just a giant play to get data. And we're as a consumer, just blind to what's really going on. So to come full circle back before we, we were saying that the, um, 
the, the one thing that the, the independent, the small operator has is pulling it at the strings of the hearts of the consumer. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that if we, we, I think that the narrative right now is gosh, darn these third parties are cutting into our margins and woes me, woes me consumer. You need to do something about this. Woes me. But if we take the approach of consumer, you do you really want to be handing over all of your data to these big third parties that are going to manipulate you and, and they're you know i think that we need to start appealing to the consumer's interests and not our own interests i think that's where we're missing in the dialogue yeah um you know i think that is an important thing to talk about um and i would argue that data is going to exist in some form or fashion and so the but we the can choose who we let and that's the message so it's going to exist no matter yeah. what we yeah. should be careful about who we let who, control who it. yeah and there you know there's a lot of um i'll call them uh digital off the grid people right who they don't use things like facebook or netflix because they don't want those companies to know um, what movies they're watching and who they're talking to and those types of things. And I am sure the same thing will happen in restaurants as well. Now, is it a meaningful percentage of the population? Probably not. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> but, but also, we haven't communicated this. We haven't educated the consumer. We They don't know how to make the right decision because they're not even aware of what their purchasing decisions make, like what, what the yeah. effect is. Yeah, that, that might be true. And um, perhaps uh, some of the things that are are coming to light with Facebook right now um, help consumers understand how companies of all kinds are using their information. Yeah. So I, I'm sorry I'm pushing on this so much right now, but, I, but my mission statement here is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. And I think the way that we're going to transform the industry is by educating the restaurant tour, so the restaurant tour can educate the consumer. Because yeah. Yeah. we have we are the second largest industry in the world. And we are influencers in this industry and we have these platforms to stand on and we are leaders in our communities. We can influence people. We yeah. have, but we have to understand, you know, we have to communicate. We have to educate the consumer. If any change is going to happen, if any transformation is going to happen. Right. So that's absolutely true. I'll take my foot off the gas now on that subject, but I just really want to drive home that point. Cause I think it's important. We communicate. You know, you are the first person who's ever even asked me about that aspect. And so I really respect that um, you're thinking about those things. And I think you're right. The industry needs to be thinking about Thank those you. things as do we as consumers. I appreciate that. So, Let's get into some of the nitty gritty now with um, some of the details, some of the granular stuff. Because I noticed you you started the, the book very broad history, and then you start to kind of like narrow your scope and get into some of the details of how we can do digital better. So mm-hmm. we kind of just spent the past twenty minutes blasting third parties. I feel great. Um, how? Do, what are the benefits of third parties? Because there are some benefits, and there there are like I, I put under a big magnif- or a magnifying glass the, the things I that irk me. But what are the benefits? Yeah, absolutely. Um, The third parties are in many ways a gift. Um, And I know it's sometimes hard to remember that when um, I think a lot of especially independent restaurants feel like these third parties are coming in with VC cash and disrupting their markets and uh, undermining their margins. But I think to remember, um, at least for the incremental sales, that even if they might be lower margin, their increased overall profit, that's super important. Um, and many, at least before the pandemic, many of the sales coming through the third parties truly were incremental because they were coming from grocery occasions. Um, so that's probably the first thing to remember. The second thing to remember is as an independent restaurant, 
the odds that you were going to spend millions of dollars on creating a uh, geospatial aware uh, platform that connects consumers to drivers to restaurants is next to nothing. Yeah. It's just not going to happen, right? And so these companies have spent money on behalf of everyone in the system in order to make something that's actually pretty cool when you step back and think about it, um, which is, I think, very important. And then um, the last thing that they bring is a logistics network that makes sense. So if you're delivering pizza, you probably deliver enough pizzas in a small enough radius that you can have your own fleet of delivery drivers and have it make sense. But if you're not pizza, you probably can't, right? You probably need to drive too far to get to enough customers to have it make sense to fund a delivery driver in his car. And to be able to share those delivery drivers and all those cars with a whole bunch of other restaurants is a really compelling um, economic proposition. Um, now, does it have to be a big third-party platform? It doesn't. We talk about in the book uh, the co-op model where restaurants band together to have their own fleet of delivery drivers and their own ordering interface so that they have a bit more control over that. There are other ways to do that. But having your own delivery driver fleet as an independent restaurant is really, really hard. So what do you say like the best, if you're just getting started, uh, the best practice is to, yes, get on these third platforms, but actively be searching for a solution to offboard them from those third platforms to your native. What about when we get our native? Do we want to stay on those third plat? Those, do we want to stay there? Yeah. So the first thing I would say is recognize that you're never going to get completely away from the third party platforms. They actually bring a lot of good and there are some consumers who are never going to get off them. That's where they choose to order and you want to be where your consumer is. And so being on the apps makes sense. And it is, in fact, a win-win-win for the consumer, for the app, for the restaurant. And it's really hard to remember that when you feel like, geez, they're taking 30% from me. That's a huge amount because I only make 10% margins. Yeah. Like, I don't even understand how yeah. this is possible. Uh, but if you step back and think about the marginal economics of that order, it's pretty good. And if those consumers really do live on those apps, if that's where they order food from, yeah. You also, um, sorry, go ahead. You're not going to access them unless you yourself are on those apps. Yeah. And you also, you point out um, that I think it's a $6 acquisition fee, which is really low, really low. Um, yeah. So if you, if you then think about, okay, some consumers are never going to leave. So I want to be on the apps always because I want to get to those consumers. Some consumers, I can probably switch to my first party. If you think about that cost as a customer acquisition cost, um, let's say you've got a $20 order, average order volume, and that 30% fee, that's where you get that $6 cost. $6 cost to acquire a consumer that has never tried your brand before is super efficient marketing spend. Super. Super efficient. Um, so if you view it as, um, a customer acquisition cost, in that sense, it's very effective, um, a wonderful way to meet new consumers who maybe didn't know about your brand before, yeah. introduce them to your food, introduce them to your concept, and then you know, someday down the road, you can maybe convert them to first party and maybe not. But you got to ask yourself, is it really a $6 acquisition fee when only 20% of the people actually choose to use your own. So anyway, I don't need to get back into that again. Yeah. Well, it depends on how many of them cross over. That's <laughs> yeah. certainly true. So but I think, I think the the first step of accepting that some consumers never are going to cross over is an important one because it forces restaurants to think about, okay, these third parties are always going to be part of my life. 
I, I, I can't wish them away. They're going to be here. So how do I set up my business to your point earlier about the business model to have those transactions make economic sense for me? So what are those best ways of setting your business up, knowing that these suckers aren't going anywhere, these third party? Oh, guys man, you're really anti third party. So, um, so one possible way is to think about differential pricing. Um, whether it's in how you charge fees or how you um, actually charge for the for the product itself. And a good example here is the online travel agencies and how they um, evolve the travel industry. So the first thing that happens when platforms come to town is all of a sudden consumers can compare prices really easily, right? So imagine how you used to go get a flight before OTAs came about to how you get one now. You know, you just go on, you compare a bunch of flights, you pick the cheapest one and off you go, right? But in order to combat that, the airlines all started doing all these crazy fees, right? So there's a fee for baggage and there is a fee for your seat selection and there's a fee to change your flight and all kinds of fees, right? Gotcha. Gotcha. And they make that OTA work for them by charging all these other fees. Then they have an even bigger advantage because they can say to you as the consumer, hey, if you buy on my website, my first party, I'm not going to charge you those fees. If you're in my loyalty program, I'm not going to charge you those fees. Waived bag fee, waived seat selection fee. You're gold. You get to sit in the best places for free, right? And restaurants can do a very similar thing, which is to say, you know, I'm going to charge delivery fees on the third-party platform so that those make sense for me. Um, But when that consumer comes over to first party, I'm going to give them a deal because I'm not having to pay the third party in order to do it. Um, The third-party platforms, to some extent, have started to recognize this in their pricing models where they've introduced tiered pricing models. Have you seen this? No, I haven't. Um, So they have tiered pricing models now where that 30% fee really only gets charged if they can demonstrate that they're bringing new consumers and that you're getting a certain level of volume from them. Um, So now break down what they do into technology service, logistics service, and marketing service. And if you say, they're really truly bringing me incremental consumers, that's when I'm going to pay that highest amount because I'm getting all three things, the tech, the logistics, and the um, marketing. Now, if I'm bringing them my own customers, and this is maybe someone who types in exactly the name of my restaurant on that third-party platform, I'm not going to pay as much. And because here now, I'm only using them for tech and for delivery. And then... um, someone like DoorDash offers a product called Drive where they um, actually do what's called white label delivery on behalf of some of the first party ordering platforms. So you go to order from, I don't know, Chipotle or Chick-fil-A or whoever, and you think you're ordering first party. Well, someone still has to deliver it. Who's delivering it? It tends to be a DoorDash driver who's doing that and they're charging a fee, but a much smaller fee um, for that logistics expertise. Got it. Um, you also, I don't know if you mentioned this, but I think the other benefit to these third parties is that the increases throughput. And I think that uh, restaurant tours forget that. I mean, but before delivery, this accessibility to, to delivery was there, they were limited by the amount of chairs they had in their restaurant where mm-hmm. when you have delivery or you, you have access to this platform, your new market is how many seats are at home anywhere, you know, like any seat, anywhere becomes one of your seats potentially, right? I That's think- exactly right. And my, you know, my co-author talks about this a lot, that in the old days is about turning tables and how many seats do you have and how, how many times can you fill those in an evening? And that was really the capacity constraint on your restaurant. 
Now the capacity constraint on your restaurant is your kitchen because you have infinite tables out there. And so that now requires uh, an operations excellence and an eye toward figuring out how many dishes can I really put through that kitchen and how can I maximize that throughput so that I can serve as many people as possible. So if we're trying to create, sorry, sorry, go ahead. The, the true magic of all of this is the higher the sales volume you can get against that fixed cost in the form of your restaurant build out and your rent, the more profitable you're going to be, right? So if you can expand your tables to infinite um, using things like delivery and takeout, then uh, you're going to make more money, not just on a petty profit basis, but your margins are going to go up also. Yeah. So if I'm looking to open a rest right now, I'm, I'm, I'm young, I'm wet behind the ears, I'm hungry, I'm an, an entrepreneur, visionary. What would a, what, what's the new approach to getting mm-hmm. started? To, to like, If I don't have anything, but I want to get started, like, what should my mentality be? What's smart in today's ecosystem as far as getting in? Yeah, you know, so it is the restaurant industry. So your food matters. Um, and it's not like all of a sudden, I know it, it feels this way with some of the virtual brands out there that you can just slap a name on anything and put it out there and it'll be fine. That's not true. The food matters. Um, and so still having a fundamentally great um, idea around the food and the brand that communicates that food is super important. And then having the consistent execution um, time after time and place after place still matters. So I would start with the foundational things of, of the restaurant industry. That's not going away. That's not changing. But then thinking about how do I do that in this new world, I would be thinking about how do I scale more rapidly and in a more capital light way, whether that's going into host kitchen, ghost kitchen, um, or maybe combination of those. I would be thinking about how do I have a digital first relationship with my consumer? What does that mean? A digital first relationship? Yeah. So uh, one of my favorite books is a book called the billion dollar brand club by Lawrence and Gracia. And it's a book about the rise of digitally native vertical brands. Um, so imagine people like the honest company or dollar shave club or where we Parker, those kinds of things. Yeah. Right. Or, and if or you any podcast. That, <laughs> yeah, if you read that book and you just imagine the whole time, how does this translate to the restaurant industry? That's what a new restaurateur should be thinking about. How can I be the dollar shave club of the restaurant industry? How can I scale quickly and have a direct digital relationship with my consumer? How can I think about talking to them in a one-to-one personalized way? How can I, and I'm going to come back to the, the thing that you're afraid of, how can I use their data to make the relationship better between us and increase the stickiness between us? Well, you think about and, business, all we've ever been doing is collecting data. You talk mm-hmm. to somebody, right? It's all about relationships. You yeah. listen to them. You're sitting across the, you, you know, the counter from them. They're telling you about their kids. They're telling you about what they're doing this weekend. And if you're a smart restaurateur up to this point, you've been listening right? And you're using that information to establish a relationship. You regurgitate that thing like a month later to show them that you give an F, right? Mm -hmm. And that's all we've ever been doing. But I think it's when it gets weird is when you, I don't know, there's a difference between persuading and manipulating. And I think that's the key difference. That's fair. Um, In the best one-to-one personalized digital marketing, it's better for both the brand and the consumer. It's better for the brand because they increase loyalty, stickiness, frequency, basket size, all the things that are good for a business, but it should be good for the consumer because truly if it's something that they value and therefore 
can be manipulated by, they want those things, right? And a, a good example of this is if you're a vegetarian, I shouldn't be advertising you a steak, right? And that's not manipulative. That's just like giving you what you want. Yeah. Or as you said, you know, a really good restaurant operator knows when it's their best um, customers' birthdays and anniversaries and it celebrates those things with them. And using data to do that is not inherently bad or manipulative. Using data to do it is just more scalable than one really good employee. Yeah. Um, what else can we do to make a, a business today more digitally, di- digital proof, I guess, for a lot of better terms? Digital proof. That's an interesting way to put it. I think yeah. design for off-premise consumption. What does that uh, mean? And by, like, by that, I mean, take a look at your menu and think about... This is where um, I was going with all these questions. We're, we're getting... Well, that's good. I'm glad yeah. we landed here. <laughs> <laughs> if your menu is designed to be consumed on-premise, and your packaging for off-premise consumption is just your, t- you know, takeout like leftover packaging. It's probably not going to be a great experience. So instead, think about how would I design my menu if 100% of everything were eaten off-premise? Would I have different items? Would I uh, maybe have the same items but serve them differently? And what if that all hinged on throughput? Through uh, mm. what if that all hinged on throughput? Yeah, you might think about. You know, which things are slowing me down in the kitchen, which things are um, really messing up my system. Before this was like a, a hot topic, I've, I've been saying do one thing really well. Yeah. Uh, and I think that if you create a brand around every one thing, right, or, or and if you create a space to just assemble one thing, your throughput becomes huge, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, before I did restaurants, I was a consultant at Bain and we used to talk a lot about the, co- the hidden costs of complexity. And uh, we would do cases with really large companies uh, trying to figure out how to reduce complexity in their businesses. And one really great example that we talked about all the time was skew reduction. And in uh, I think the example we used was in a grocery context, if you reduce the number of SKUs, sales typically go up. And the reason is because the consumer is less overwhelmed by choice. And it's much easier for them to go in and say, oh, I want this, I want this, I want this. And so if you think about your own experience going to like a huge broadline grocery store and you're like, ah, I just got to run through and get the things I want versus going to say a Trader Joe's that's much smaller and has a much more limited skew count. All of a sudden you're looking at everything and going, well, I do need these cookies. Those sound really amazing. And, you know, it is pumpkin season. I'll totally buy this where you would not probably have that same exploratory mindset at a big broadline grocery store. Yeah. And I think, um, I think we kind of alluded to this earlier, but the benefits of putting people through a system. I mean, ideally when you're training your server, you know, you're creating a system and you're putting that person into the system where you want them to be themselves. But at the same time, you want them to make sure that if I order a, a burger, I can get a second patty for $2, you know, the upsell of yep. all these things. And, um, but humans drop the ball. Humans forget about the, the upsell. They forget, they don't recognize an opportunity when it's right in front of them to get that extra $2. When you put them through a hard system, would it be technically called a hard system where they have to, to get to get to this point 
of the stage to the next point, you have to click that. So like mm-hmm. the, these, these upsells are hard. Like you can't yeah. advance to the next place. You have the, to at least consider it. Right? Exactly. So, so the server can't forget to say it because the server is a kiosk. So, so every opportunity back to your whole point that you're making with the airlines earlier. Now we can create systems for upselling and it's hard where there's no bypassing. You have mm-hmm. to upsell. I think that's another benefit that yep. people and don't take into consideration. Typically, the big chains, when they put kiosks in, we'll see a 25% increase in check. Yeah. When, when a consumer is using a kiosk. Because they, they basically upsell themselves. Oh, like, I can get double protein. I do want double protein. Oh, I can add avocado. I do want to add yeah. avocado. Here's a, a great example of where that's really tremendously supported or helped the restaurant industry, in my opinion. Even in person is when you digitize the checkout. Like when you're checking out, there's now always an option for a 20% tip. And mm-hmm. you almost always see people leave something now because that hard point where like you can't advance until you make a, a choice. Mm-hmm. And I think when you just force that, that encounter, it just increases the check average. It increases cash flow. That's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, this, I mean, we could talk about so many different things right now. I've been really enjoying my conversation with you. Is there anything that we haven't really dove into a lot that you were hoping we would discuss? And I'm not trying to wrap up. I just want to know what is near and dear to your heart. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking at um, my version of the book, which of course is all um, marked up and has sticky notes on it because I'm checking to see if there's things that we haven't talked about. Look, you can see, you I, know, I have highlights. I don't know if you can see my book right now. It's pretty <laughs> dark, but I, I made some notes too. You'd be proud. I love of it. I love it. <laughs> um, you know, one of the most fun aspects of writing this book was getting to interview a whole bunch of people for the book. And we talked to about a hundred different people who are, you know, independent restaurateurs, people who were technology innovators, um, people at the platforms, all kinds of different uh, innovators in the space. And um, when I think about the most amazing thing in the book, it's the voices of all these people. And the best thing about the restaurant industry is truly how innovative it is. You know, there are 600,000 restaurant locations in America. And in a way, each one of them is their own little experiment. And you tend to see, um, you know, people out there doing all kinds of wild and wacky things and and just trying things and seeing what works. And I love that about the industry. Um, And I hope that that continues and actually accelerates in this new world where you can digital um, experiment in both a, a physical format and a digital format. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think you're bringing up something that's really interesting. And um, right now, we it feels like the likelihood of this type of technology being accessible to everybody, being able to build this type of interface, a platform for your restaurant to sit on, seems so far away. Mm-hmm. But I, I, are you familiar with Moore's Law? I am. Yeah. Is it really that far away then? <laughs> no, it's the- not. And, and in fact, when I think I, so, in many ways, it's already here. Yeah. So when I say, is that really that far away? I mean, access to technology that anybody can use. Are you, have you read the book Abundance or Bold or The, Fa- the Future is Faster Than You Think? I feel that I have not read as much as you and that I need to write less and read more. I really don't read that much. I, I swear <laughs> I don't. But that, that's, how I'm, that's why I'm familiar with this idea yeah. of, of Moore's Law uh, and this idea that we always think that the future is much further because we think linearly. We're, we're hardwired mm-hmm. to think linearly. But yeah. the truth is, it's exp- what's happening is exponential. And if you look at how far we've come since 2007 of the advent of the, the smartphone and what's happening so fast right now, the reason why I'm thinking about this is because all the people in our industry, all the really intelligent, hardworking grinders who just didn't even know this world existed 
it was an option for the restaurant industry. And now that we do know it's an option, I think Moore's law of exponential is really starting to get to the point. And if you don't, if you're not familiar with exponential, it means things double a little more than double every couple of years. And it gets to the point where a double after 10 years of things doubling is a big double, right? We're there, yeah. We're there yeah. right now. So how is that going to disrupt things? So uh, when I was at Taco Bell, we were very privileged, right? It's the world's largest restaurant company uh, owned them. And therefore, uh, between a great balance sheet and thousands and thousands of restaurants to amortize an investment over, if we wanted to go build a custom piece of software that cost millions of dollars, we could do it, right? We had to make a business case and we had to justify it, but we could go do it. And I was pleasantly surprised to find when I left that environment and went out into the startup world that all of these companies had been created with the express mission of bringing that level of innovation to everyone. And I call it the sassification of the restaurant space and what's happening. So what is Uh, SaaS for those who aren't familiar? SaaS is software as a service. And so, you know, I'll use the example of my own um, department at Taco Bell, we spent a bunch of money building a custom geospatial mapping software that helped us select where we were going to put restaurants, um, how much cannibalization we could expect, what type of restaurants best fit in those neighborhoods, um, all those things. Now, an independent restaurant can't do that. And in fact, the way they've done it historically is using their gut, right? These are smart people who have a lot of experience and they make good decisions. And that is wonderful, but it is also limiting, right? They can't make good decisions hundreds at a time. They can do them one at a time. And in the intervening period, companies like Location AI and Placer AI have come out who have basically taken something very similar to what we built internally at Talk About and made it available to everyone for a small monthly fee. That's incredible, right? And you know that, that software may or may not be important in an individual restaurant's Uh, competitive advantage, right? They might choose to put their eggs in a different basket, but the fact that it exists and is available and that you don't have to spend millions of dollars to go build something yourself is absolutely incredible. And that gives me, um, that gives me absolute incredible just excitement and hope for the independent restaurant industry that they can go out and get access to many of the best tools that are out there um, for the big guys. Yeah. Um, And there's, there's, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say another good example of this. We interview in the book, um, a man named Adam Brotman, who's the CEO of Brightloom. And um, Adam was the chief digital officer at Starbucks. So he was, you know, kind of the guy who built the Starbucks app that everyone is so amazed by, right? Yep. And he's now at a company that is essentially sassifying many of the aspects of the Starbucks app so that not just Starbucks has access to this amazing app and loyalty program and this ability to um, digitally communicate one-to-one on a personalized way with their consumers. But lots of people can for a monthly fee. Yeah. I mean, you're seeing it happening. Like the, this, this technology is becoming increasingly more accessible. And if you take Moore's law into consideration, you take Mm -hmm. the DIY, uh, 
mentality of just learning and figuring things out. Information is available now, and the the technology is only the, the the technology for creating these these things is even getting better. Uh, you yeah. take that into consideration. I think there's a shift in our industry right now that's happening, where we're not looking at the guy down the street or the gal down the street as a competitor, but as a colleague, as a comrade, mm-hmm. as somebody yeah. to collaborate with and you're seeing it in pop-ups we're all hosting each other's own pop-ups we're recognizing that when we come together and we share each other's shit we get more traffic we can we can hitchhike on or we can you know uh hitch our 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 cart to other people's brands and like we're realizing that you go much further together um and we take all these things into consideration i really do think that moore's law isn't so much a reflection on technological advancement as much as it's a, a a reflection of human advancement because technology is just an extension of us. We're creating yeah. that, you we know, create it and we use it and we benefit from it. So there's, I think there's a lot of hope for the future of our industry as far as, um, you know, bringing it back to the independent. And there's a lot of suggestions that the smaller and nimbler you are in the future, the better because of how fast things are going to be changing. If you, mm-hmm. if you get big and dumb, like it's going to be harder to the, you know, correct. So there's a lot of, that. yeah. What's up? I think that's absolutely right. Um, you know, there's a quote in the book that says Kodak knew down to the minute when digital cameras were going to come out and they still couldn't get themselves to like, yeah, they, they like, didn't, they, they invented a digital camera and they buried that shit cause they were afraid of it. Couldn't do it. Right. And, um, that to me is the epitome of a big company who is so tied up in its historical sources of cash flow that it just can't do the thing well, that's relevant to the they, future. They saw themselves. Yeah. They saw themselves as a chemical company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they forgot that with the Polaroid, they were actually in the convenience company because they mm-hmm. took all those steps. Think about it. You to take a photo. You would have had to take a photo. You would have had to take that photo to the, the, the camera store, get it developed. You have to get every piece of film developed, uh, you know, and then the, there'd be like 20 bad pictures for yeah. every one good one. <laughs> so they, 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 they streamlined the the process of taking a photo with the Polaroid and then they forgot that that's what their unique solid proposition was, was convenience. Yeah, yeah. And they, they even invented a digital camera and they were afraid of it. They could have been way ahead of the curve. Yeah. And so an independent restaurant to get back to our analogy, they don't have that baggage, right? They're not concerned with those things. And so they can make these decisions, but I love the idea Um, that you're talking about, about the restaurants banding the other. Because one of the downsides of all this technology is most restaurant people didn't get into restaurants to be technologists. They got into restaurants because they love food and they love hospitality and they love people. They love, um, you know, creating an environment, right? You're cueing me up, sister. (laughs) I've been sitting on this, but we're going to take one more quick break to thank our sponsors and we'll be right back to start to wrap up our conversation today. You know Restaurant Unstoppable's mission because I'm constantly echoing it. It's to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. And I could not be more excited to be partnering with Diageo Bar Academy because they have the same goals. And I am just filled with hope right now because never before has there been such an abundance of information and resources. And it's because things like Diageo Bar Academy exist. Diageo Bar Academy equips bartenders, servers, managers, and hospitality professionals with the insights, stories, and tools to be better. They're constantly raising the bar on industry standards. No matter your background or your skill level, there is knowledge and new techniques for you waiting 
over at Diageo Bar Academy that will improve your personal and professional lives. For example, they just launched a new masterclass, Tips for Profitable Menus. With expert tips and step-by-step guidance, their experts give you all the advice you need to craft exciting and profitable menus. With this masterclass, you'll learn how to create eye-catching menu design, how to promote your most profitable drinks, how to understand poor costs and pricing accordingly, and you'll discover how to create well-designed menus that will attract new customers, exceed your regulars' expectations, and maximize upselling and revenue. And it goes far beyond masterclasses like this. You can also join live events and watch all past masterclasses on demand at www.diageobaracademy.com. Whether you're a bartender, owner, operator, or if you're just completely new to the industry, diageobaracademy.com has easy to access resources to help you learn new skills and stay in the loop with all the latest industry trends. Diageo Bar Academy is a free online resource for hospitality professionals of all skill levels. Stay informed, inspired, and connected to grow your career or your business by joining Diageo Bar Academy today. Why wait? Visit www.diageobaracademy.com. That's D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Margin Edge. Margin Edge is a restaurant management software that uses POS integration and invoice data to show you your food costs in real time. The beauty of Margin Edge is that the information is immediately available. You take a picture and boom, you have access to it just in time and everything that Margin Edge does is aimed at making your restaurant more efficient. So what exactly do you get with Margin Edge? With Margin Edge, you get automatic invoice processing. You can do this by either taking photos with their app, scanning slash emailing files, or integrating it with a electronic data interchange. You can get daily controllable P&L, including labor data. You can get recipe costing and menu analysis tools, not to mention you also get inventory management and actual versus theoretical usage reports. Margin Edge gives you the prime cost daily, so there are no surprises at the end of the month. By totally digitizing your back office, your team saves hours on paperwork and gets real-time data to manage food costs, labor, and budgets in the moment, not weeks after the period ends. With supply chain disruption and labor shortages, making real-time data-driven decisions is more important than ever. Because you are Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, Margin Edge will cover your onboarding. That means you get 60 days free to get started and up and running before you make your first payment. To learn more, head to me.marginedge.com com slash restaurant hyphen unstoppable or find the banner in the show notes we're back and uh what was the thought you just shared with us can do you remember where you were going yeah so i was talking about restaurateurs and their motivation for getting into the industry in the yes. first place yeah typically food hospitality people and maybe creating an environment of um, yeah, woman inviting and wonderful. I think the most rewarding, let's be honest, the most rewarding thing about this industry isn't the amount of money we're going to make. Um, we're, we are driven by immediate reaction and approval from our guests. 
I think a lot of us are. And I think that you kind of point this out in the way in very early on in your book, um, talking about India and the company in India with the delivery company in India and, um, what's the name of that? It, oh, the double wall system. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah. um, these delivery drivers see, uh, the, their, their, the end user as God mm-hmm. because they're, they, they feel fulfilled because they're, they, I think we all want to be seen. We all want to be recognized. We all want to be approved, you know? And I think that that in that moment in the book, that's what that they're trying to say is like, our purpose is to, to drive this food to this consumer. And that is our purpose. That, that is our reason for existence. This is our God. It's kind of how I interpreted that. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, we all have that feeling to a greater or lesser extent where when we succeed at something, whatever it might be in our chosen career path. And when that success is recognized by another person, we feel fulfilled, right? Whether we call that God or not, you know, it probably depends on our religion, but we feel fulfilled when we have helped contribute to the environment that we find ourselves in. There is a a huge, um, I don't know what to call it. um, Epidemic happening right now. It it, it extends beyond the restaurant industry, Uh, but people have, have never been more, uh, depressed suicide rates are higher than ever. We don't need each other like we used to. We don't. We're more dependent on market and government and technology than we used to be dependent on family, community. You know, we needed each other. We literally, if you took somebody and you put them in the woods without a tribe, they wouldn't survive on their own. We have, we're hardwired to depend on each other, to need each other, to be seen, to be valued, to be recognized. And with this digital world we're moving into, we don't get that recognition. We don't get seen anymore. We don't get the cookie. We're removing the whole reason why we're in this business. The re, the, the immediate reaction of the guests, the, the, the satisfaction, the gratitude, we're stripping that away from the restaurant tour right now. Mm, yeah. What I, I psychological great, impact is this going to have? Yeah, for those people who chose the career for those reasons. It's that's most of us. That's that's right. the majority of us. Most people don't say, I want to be rich. I'm going to open a restaurant. Who says that? Some people do. And I feel bad. I think for most people, people say, I am rich. I want to open a restaurant. And exactly. Then that's the right scenario. Yeah. <laughs> but what's going to happen? Like, what's going to happen? Like, I guess the, we, the, the consumer demands, right? The consumer yeah. demands all these things, uh, convenience, primarily convenience, right? And option and choice at what cost is my question to you? Mm, At what cost to our relationships? I mean, I think number one, people aren't going to stop going into restaurants. Um, and I wouldn't want people to listen to this and think, Oh, you know, delivering the digital restaurant, that means everything's going hundred percent delivery. We are social creatures. We want to go into restaurants. Uh, we want to spend time with each other And I think as the pandemic has sort of wound down, um, at least in my neighborhood, and I don't know where you live, if it's like this, the restaurants have just bounced right up, right? Because everyone is so excited to go out and spend time with each other. And that's not going to go away. Um, So I think that there will continue to be some part of that. For the portion of the business that is off-premise, that is digitized, I think first and foremost, recognizing that driver as one of your customers is an important step to make. Because if you see them simply as an anonymous person that sits in between your creation of this dish and your consumer's enjoyment of it, it's always going to feel unfulfilling. But if you see that driver as part of the chain, uh, much like your server is, it's going to be more fulfilling. 
And then the next thing I think is creation of platforms like Ovation and, um, and Tattle, where you can get feedback from the consumer. And they can tell you how did they like the meal and what problems did they have or what was wonderful about it. Getting that feedback digitally, I think, can be just as rewarding as getting it in the form of a smile, a compliment, or a tip. I don't know. I don't, I mean, I, I think it's something which is better than nothing. That's, That's kind of where I'm at. Yeah. Um, but there's nothing quite like seeing somebody make eye contact with you, seeing them just so satisfied. People, What's that expression? People don't oh man people can't hear what you're saying over what you're doing or something like that the the, the amount of communication that happens between people is like 90 or like 80 percent visual and mm, the rest yeah. of that communication what you say is like okay sure whatever how do you look what's are you are you glowing right now are you are you all that that low road of communication is being ripped away in that moment um but i do like your optimism <laughs> um, <I'm sorry. laughs> so um you did mention in the book and i i meant to ask earlier uh you said that there's you mentioned two names uh by or two companies by name in the book uh as being like it almost seems like your choice for uh native options if you're in this industry if you're a mid if you're a mid-size organization you pointed out i believe it was olo and then mm-hmm. for smaller independent operators, you really like Chow now. Why, why did you specifically point out those two options? Well, you know, we tried very hard in the book to be as neutral as we possibly could. Um, and uh, Olo gets a lot of attention in the book because they really are an excellent company. They're an excellent choice for larger operators. Um, but also because Noah's such a visionary. I think he saw where this was going, uh, the founder. He saw where this was going so early and um, really just had this maniacal focus on a future that, frankly, at the time, the rest of us did not see. And um, so in a lot of ways, it's a story about um, him that is a metaphor for the evolution of the industry. Um, but uh, we do like his solution um, that he's created. We think Ola is great for converting people over to first party, but it's not right for everyone. Um, they tend to be a little bit more enterprise focused. Um, they make a little bit more sense for large restaurant chains or medium sized restaurant chains. And there's a whole bunch of other options out there um, for smaller ones. And, you know, whether it's someone like a lunchbox or a chow now, there's a lot of different directions that people can go to accomplish the same things. Um, and many of these tools are excellent. And I think increasingly you see a lot of the, the POS systems um, doing a lot of these things directly. So something like a toast is a fantastic solution. Um, and, you know, getting back to, you know, why people got into the industry in the first place, the challenge of all these amazing technology solutions that are available to everyone is that there's so many of them, right? And if you got into the industry to make great food and serve people, not to like figure out which technology is best. It's mind numbing, right? Yeah. You're just looking at this vast array of things that it's you overwhelming. Could do. It's drinking from the fire hose. It's you blowing your head off. Yeah. Um, and what I love about um, your thought about uh, the rest, independent restaurants banding together and helping each other it's is the that way. they can share these best practices and say, okay, the way I solved this problem was with this. And I used this in order to go after this. And this was right for me because I needed these things. But if you need those things, you maybe should look over here. And 
um, their experience and sharing those experiences with each other are what's going to make the industry great. And that's exactly what we're doing at restaurantunstoppablenetwork.com. That's literally why I built my community is to, and what you just said to the T is to build a place for people to come together and say, this is what I'm doing. What did you do? And if we can create space for that and if it can be organic and natural and well-intentioned, I think that we're going to, again, Moore's law exponential change. Um, yeah, it's possible. I think that's exactly right. Right. I, you know, so many of the conferences and things, you know, the big names are there, but they're paying us sponsors. They have and motives. They have ulterior motives. And that's one of the things that and that's everybody the, does. I'm tooting everybody my does. horn. I have sponsors too, but I bet my sponsors really hard. I turned yeah. away more sponsors than I've accepted. And it's because I really want this resource to be, um, not like everything else. The trust is our unique selling proposition. My personal plug is over. I'm so sorry. This is your time. Uh, That's okay. I've really, I believe in what you're doing, man. You. I like, I totally agree. <laughs> thank you so much. So uh, I've really enjoyed our time together and I just want to kind of just, I do push back a lot on this stuff and I'm, I want my listeners to know that I do believe in a lot of this stuff too. Uh, I think that it's really easy to get excited about what's happening out there and we all want to be leaders. We all want to be innovators. We all want to be thought leaders, you know, like, and sometimes we just react to the consumer and we like the consumer needs us. If we don't do this, we're going to die. We're going to be the dinosaurs. And we, I think we, we are, we put ourselves, we, we react ourselves into a corner as a result because we're just so reactive. Yeah. And I think that it's, as much as I agree with a lot of what is shared, I'll use Sean Walsh. I have a lot of respect for Sean, right? And I push back with him a lot when it comes to like a lot of the plugged in and social media and always sharing. I think that if you do, if we do what you share with us, if we do what Sean shares with us, we'll be successful. And I support a lot of that stuff. What I say is at what cost? I think it's important that we, we take a step back and uh, we really just be mindful going to the future about where we take things in a less reactive way, in a more proactive way of saying, no consumer, maybe you don't want that because have you considered all these things and at what cost and just push back a little bit and start influencing the, the consumer versus just giving them what they want. Cause it will get us in trouble. True. Yeah. I think that's absolutely true. I think we have a, a moral responsibility as an industry because we're feeding people three times a day, seven days a week um, to help them make great choices. And um, we also have a great responsibility with our employees. We are the second largest private employer in the United States. That's a huge responsibility to teach people how to be great at their jobs, how to love their jobs, um, and how to be fulfilled like those double wallet drivers. Yeah. Uh, Meredith, I've really enjoyed today's conversation. Uh, how can we connect with you if we want to learn more? I know you guys are teaching this. Maybe now's a good time to let the folks know how we can uh, enroll in some of your courses. I'm, yeah, assuming, I'm making assumptions right now. I'm assuming this course is on the back end of this. Yeah, thing. absolutely. <laughs> the, the most important thing and most important place to start is buying the book. Um, it is available on Amazon, Target, Barnes & Noble, all the places that sell books. Um, you can also buy it if you want to go to our first party channel and support the authors at deliveringthedigitalrestaurant.com. So See what she did there? Appreciate that. You gotta, yeah. Yeah, she, she bypassed that third party. I like it. Um, That's exactly right. Yep. <laughs> um, so we would we would absolutely appreciate if people did that. And then um, on we have another website called Learn Delivery, uh, which is a website where you can find um, you know links to all the podcasts and blogs and things that we're doing right now. Um, you'll find a lot of the 
content that frankly was left on the cutting room floor. It turns out if you interview 100 people, you can't put everything they say into a book. So we have a lot of other content that we'll share on there. And then over time, we'll start having uh, classes and things as well. It's funny. You just struck a vein with me. People have asked me why I haven't written a book yet. I'm like, I was like, there's a mountain of content behind me. I don't want to go through all that. Like, we're like, yeah. And not to mention people are constantly contradicting each other. I I don't even know where I lay in half this (laughs) stuff, you know? Uh, So, so uh, Instagram is learn.delivery, correct? Mm -hmm, That's right. And uh, we wrap up every conversation by calling somebody out. And I know that you are just, you know, your network for people who are movers and shakers in this industry, because you just spent, like you said, you've interviewed so many of them. Who do you respect? And admire maybe some of the people that you got to connect with in the book that you think I should get on the show that would make great guests. You know, I think a great guest for you would be a woman named Jen Parker. Um, we interview her in the marketing chapter. And what I love about her is that she helps restaurants use the third party platforms to their advantage. So rather than, you know, sticking in a black and white area of, gosh, they're evil and I want everyone on my first party, she's extremely good about saying, here's how to use them productively so that it's a win for them, a win for your consumer, and a win for you. And that was uh, Parker, that was the last name, what was the first name? Jen Parker. Jen Parker. Par- Parker. You can tell I'm from <laughs> Jen Parker, look out, I'm coming after you. I'd love to get you on the show. I haven't decided if I'm going to use the Q&A, but if you have a question, feel free to go ahead and ask it. Yeah, I, I I spent an hour and a half chomping at the bit here because you know so my patient. feeling on, on third party, right? I think it's pretty similar to mine. <laughs> uh, no, it's worse than yours. Okay. Uh, what Thanks happens to – I have a question for Meredith. Mm-hmm. Uh, tomorrow, every restaurateur in America says DoorDash, Grubhub, have a nice day. What happens? I would love that scenario. And I'm hopefully, I hope that I'm part of that scenario. Maybe we wow. will keep this in here. And I know I already know. The, I already Share know this the episode. Answer. Share this episode. You, if you no, are listening I, to this, I, I already know. The and you answer. want to shut down Grubhub Look, and DoorDash. They can't, they can't live without the restaurant. They need us. It, it is no. a three legged stool. They can't live no, without no, the restaurants. No, they, they can't live without the consumer. No, they've already built their little infrastructure. They already have public money. They will open up ghost kitchens all over America quicker than you say Jack Frost. Yeah, DoorDash has already done it. Uber already done it. Yeah. Well, okay, so DoorDash has two of them. Yeah, Uber yeah. has one Those in France. Test. Yeah, Those are tests. Test. They're tests, yeah. Yeah, Uber they're tests. Because they're one of these days, the restaurateurs are going to wake up, and I tell this to every client I have, you need to drop them like a bad habit. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's an, I, I affectionately call it the app trap. Yeah. Or the Southwest strategy, right? You're right, saying, exactly. Like, just exactly. be first party. If people want you, they'll come find you. You just, All right. Here's a, here's a concept for you. Have the restaurateur call up Grubhub or Uber or wherever and say, let me see. I'm going to give you a list of all my customers and all their data. Okay. I will be sending you an invoice for that <laughs> and see how they react to that. They're not going to say yes. Yeah, yeah. You know they're not going to say yes because they already have your data. That's they right. already sucked you in like a drug dealer. You already you already gave them all the secret sauce. Your customers. I mean, talk about a transfer of IP. Okay. You could sit there and tell me that there's a strategy for you know dealing with the third party. Yeah, the strategy is tell them to go away. So do, you, do you believe in the co-op model? 
No. And here's why I'll tell you. Oh, I wanted to get into that. Thank you for reminding me. We're we're going to use this. This is interesting. I'll tell you exactly why this is such a problem for the industry. Okay? In March or April of 2020, we made a deal with a very large uh, tech company, and we offered free e-commerce to anybody who wanted it for a year, and nobody took it. Hmm. Okay? Nobody took it. And the reason why is that we suffer in the industry, in the restaurant industry, from a DYI virus. Okay? Yes, you should white label. You should do delivery if you're a, if you're a casual dining condition. The fine dining guys couldn't care less because they refuse to give up delivering an experience. Because mm-hmm. that's, that's what we're giving that's the up. the definition of their restaurant, right? As right. And, and, and delivering the experience versus delivery and a bowl of food is not what I think the tomorrow of the restaurant industry is going to be. Okay. Plus you have to also consider the restaurant needs to actually understand that if you're going to do delivery, you need a whole separate line just to handle that. And you mentioned it, the Taco Bell had two lines. Gee, I wonder why. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because they didn't want to interrupt the dining capability. Right. Third-party delivery is just as good as convincing America that coffee is $5, okay? It's a marketing trap, and it's taken advantage of because of the pandemic, all right? And if the restaurants turn around tomorrow and say goodbye, I guarantee you all of them will have ghosts. They'll be calling Kitchen United and Reef and everybody else on the planet and opening up stuff left, right, and center, hmm. okay? Because they won't be able to survive. They need, they need the restaurant. They, they do. Need they the- absolutely need the restaurant. They, they have nothing to deliver if no so one's cooking food. Here's my, my perfect storm scenario where I think right now use third parties, exploit them for all the reasons we decided to get them onto your first, your party, your, you know, your native platform, but also at the same time, start communicating what we communicated today, we can create our own solution and it's not out of reach and it's going to be here faster than you think. So I, I, I love you much, Eric. Wait, wait, but Bob, I, let me I finish. You- Bob, let me finish. Go ahead. But c- communicate that it's possible. And I think that's the biggest thing holding us back right now is we don't think it's possible, but it is possible. Oh, it's absolutely uh, possible for us to create our own solutions. Technology it's, is advancing it's, faster it's than ever. It's more impossible. It's yes. already available. So now that we know that, the question is, okay, then what is the solution? And once restaurant tours know that there's another solution that works for us, the industry, not a third party, then pull out. And it's so as easy I, as a, a, a turtle with a straw in its nose to make a video go viral <laughs> to make that message go out. It's that simple. It will happen. Then answer, my, answer a question for me. Why in March and April of 2020, when given the opportunity for a free e-commerce platform, white label, did nobody take it because the the restaurant tour reacts to the consumer and you weren't the consumer. They don't give a fuck. Ah, okay. That makes sense to me. All right. That makes perfect sense to me. But now in 2021, I think it's a little different. I think that they realized that, you know, you could talk about incremental sales to me until you're blue in the face. Uh, being an accountant for 38 years is not a good thing sometimes. 
<laughs> because there is no incremental sales. It's impossible to get them off of those apps and transfer them onto your white label. You could dangle the carrot all you want. They've been programmed. They're habitualized. They're not going to switch. And I know this because I had three delivery-only clients pre-pandemic that all died because, as Meredith eloquently said, it's tough to do logistics if you're in the restaurant business because it's not the same. There's too many other considerations. And by died, you meant the restaurant closed. Just want to make sure that's clear. There's all liability issues. There's all kinds of extra insurance. There's all kinds of overhead associated with doing this. Okay. But, you know, unless you're Taco Bell that can get 10% out of those things because of the volume, using them is toxic. It it, it just isn't worth it. It's like stepping in anthrax. You're giving away your customers. We're past our time, Meredith. Uh, Thank you very much. I, I do feel like, do you feel deflated right now? No, I don't feel deflated. I feel like I'm I'm taking it in because I think this is the perspective that a lot of restaurant people have, right? And it's real. That pain is real. And I want to go back to saying reinforce what I said earlier. I don't think all the thing. I think what's happening is happening. We need to do the things that are in your book, and I, I just think we need to be mindful and aware and get as much perspective as possible. And that's all I'm trying to do is because I think everybody else that's out there right now is just echoing the same thing because they all want to be seen as the the person who knows the most or whatever, you know, and it's just a matter of getting to the information and echoing it. And I think it's important that we start to echo different things. Mm, that's, you know? yeah. um, that's all I'm coming. That's all I'm trying to say, but I just want to say thank you so much. Uh, you are a great guest. I really enjoyed this conversation. I really enjoyed your book, delivering the digital restaurant, your roadmap to the future of food. And I'll say it again. There is no questioning. You are unstoppable. Thank you very much for thank having you. me. It was super fun. It was great. <laughs> There we go. Another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Special thanks to today's guest, Meredith Sandland, the author, co-author of Delivering the Digital Restaurant, Your Roadmap to the Future of Food. And I love today's conversation. I want to have more conversations like this, more forward facing conversations. What what does the, the future of our industry look like? Oh, how can we offer that perspective? What can you start doing now to be ready for that future? And how can we go into the future a little bit more intentional, a little more proactive instead of reactive? And I think that's one thing that we can absolutely, absolutely change about how we do things in our industry is just, we're so reactive to the consumer. We're so afraid of the consumer putting us out of business. I think it's time for the consumer to check themselves before they wreck themselves. And I think we need to be at the leading edge of enlightening them and telling them how their consumer behavior affects everyone. So I hope you guys kind of agree with that sentiment. And I really loved what Meredith had to say today around, uh, this idea, how, how she kind of reinforced this idea of what we're trying to do over at Restaurant Unstoppable uh, and trying to unite restaurateurs and, and understand that, hey, if we open up, if we share knowledge, if we come together, if we if we support each other, we can go much further together than we could ever go on our own. And that's exactly what we're trying to do over at Restaurant Unstoppable Network. So if you want to be a part of these futuristic forward-thinking conversations, then join the network. Uh, lots of great stuff happening over there, and I'm really happy with how it's kind of unfolding organically. Uh, Not too much on the schedule for events right now, which is actually kind of good news because I really want to open up the dialogue and make Restaurant Stoppable more 
of a collective than just me going out there and talking to these people. I really want my listeners to influence the future of the show and write me Eric at restaurant Tell me what content you would love to hear, what your pain points are even better. Get in the network and join the conversation. And I really want to go to work for you. I joined this industry because I love serving people and I can't think of a better group of people to serve than those who dedicate their lives to serving others. And that's you guys. So it's an honor to be here. Uh, Thank you for listening until next time. Peace out.